Hello, and welcome to episode five of Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman. I'm your host on Dangerous Exponents, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. In this episode, we are going to talk about herd immunity, a really, really important concept and a fascinating mathematical issue as well especially as the vaccine rollout gets going and some of the math that goes into herd immunity shifts or at least shifts focus from people getting infections to people getting vaccinated, hopefully skipping the infection step entirely. Uh, before we really get rolling, I want to remind everyone that you can find all of our old episodes, all four of them, at DangerousExponents.com. And we're also going to be circulating a survey. Uh, we'd love your feedback. Uh, we have plenty of ideas of how to improve the show, but they might be pointless. Maybe you have better ones, and we'd love to know what you like, what you don't like, what, you, what you'd like to hear from us in the future, and so on. So if you have a moment, please check that out. You'll find it on at least my Twitter, at Tennis Abstract, and uh, maybe we'll be able to link it on Podbean as well, where the main Dangerous Exponent site is. So, herd immunity. Uh, first things first is, is a terminology issue. Uh, herd immunity uses the word immunity, which sounds pretty strong, uh, a very strong form of, of protection or almost uh, impossibility of getting infected. But some people have proposed referring to the, the concept as herd protection as well, because herd immunity doesn't mean everyone is magically uh, defended from the, the, the virus. It just means that the community itself is protected from an outbreak. So they prefer using herd protection as well. So Carl, before we start using whatever term we use a thousand times in this episode, um, should we be saying herd protection instead? With the caveat that we try to put in toward the beginning of every episode that we are neither doctors nor epidemiologists nor scientists, but just a couple of people who like to think analytically and have done so for a living. Yeah, I think I think herd protection or some other term is more appropriate and maybe lost in the battlefield of ideas because it's it's a lot less powerful sounding. But yeah, the, the, there is no true total herd immunity, even for diseases we, we think we've mostly conquered from the past. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Herd protection is more accurate as a, as a description. Since we've both been doing research for the, this episode and reading the term herd immunity a couple thousand times, uh, I think we're going to fail at qu quickly switching over. So for today, we'll use herd immunity and herd protection interchangeably. But just keep that in mind. That uh, We'll get into the numbers in a moment, but immunity is not perfect. Uh, certainly, herd immunity is far from perfect protection from any virus, uh, including this one. So let's dig into the numbers. Starting with the threshold, I've seen a lot of numbers thrown around anywhere from from 20% to 70 or 80% or even higher. So with this idea that herd protection is achieved when a certain percentage of the population uh, has some sort of protection from the virus, whether from a previous infection or from a vaccine, uh, Carl, how should we how should we interpret these various estimates of what the threshold is for achieving herd immunity or herd protection? Well, I think it's layers of uncertainty on top of each other. We, we did an episode, I think, three ago about this idea of how many people, any one person infected will infect on average. And 
that is very much dependent on how many people that person comes into contact with is susceptible. So the, the two numbers are, are very closely linked. And as we talked about in that episode, there's a ton of uncertainty about that number and not just uncertainty, but actual variation between people, places, uh, even the same place in different conditions. Uh, and then you, you add on top of that, um, just that this there isn't a, an exact threshold and this is more of a gradient because even if you've achieved what, what people are defining as herd immunity or herd protection, you still can have outbreaks and uh, you can still have areas within the area that seems to have herd immunity that are uh, that are not reaching that threshold. It's it's just a very tricky one to define. I would like your take, Jeff, on the very low numbers. Why is it that this this concept we talked about on our episode about R, the number of people who on average are infected by someone who's infected, why the uh, dispersion factor, the factor that makes that number so variable for individual people, that makes super spreading possible, why does that then lead to the uh, hypothesis that maybe the percentage of people being immune needed to get to herd protection, herd immunity is much lower than the more typical estimate? Well, I think there's there's two factors that go into that. Uh, one is that certain people aren't necessarily super spreaders, but they are, because of their social role, like bus drivers, for instance, or maybe nurses, um, they're seeing a lot of people. So, so they aren't super spreaders in the sense that we discussed a few episodes ago, that there's something different about the, the aerosols they're emitting. It, it's more that they're potential super spreaders because of their function in society. They're, they're exposed to a lot of people. And as, as the number of people who are immune rises, then the odds that they are immune, like that these potential super spreaders are immune, that I think that rises faster. I mean, I, I'm not sure I, I, I'm totally confident in my intuition about that. But if, if let's say, 20% of the people in some population are immune through a vaccine or through, uh, through previous infection, then it has probably reached a lot of those potential super spreaders. It's more likely to reach them because they're a potential super spreader in the social sense. Um, so, so they're more likely to then get the disease to spread it further. So the people who are now getting it past that 20% or 30% threshold, they're less likely to be someone who passes it on to 10 or 20 more. So I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, I said there were two factors, but I think I kind of summed them both in into one. I mean, do, do you think that's a fair assessment, Carl? Have I, is that a reasonable, intuitive way of looking at it? Well, it, it certainly makes sense to me that a smart vaccine program would capture in its in its first wave people who are uh, disproportionately likely to to spread the infection, and I think that's kind of what's driving the queue in in the U.S. We talked about that in a recent episode, but uh, it it seems like it's one, but not the only or the main factor. It's just surprising to me because when we read about these lower thresholds, I don't, I didn't see that reason given explicitly. It seemed like more of a theoretical percentage that you could achieve, uh, and I wondered if it had to do with some sort of mathematical constraint on super spreading that kicks in faster uh, with with fewer people protected uh, because of the unique conditions you need for for these um, 
spreading events. Do you do you accept the general idea that there is some kind of a threshold? Do you think that's a useful way of talking about it because we need some kind of target, even though this is a sort of continuous level of protection that we're achieving? Well, you're definitely right. It's continuous. It's useful to think of this uh, as a gradient. Uh, and it's also important to, to think about what exactly that threshold means. I mean, I, I think it's, it's helpful to have some idea of what the threshold is, keeping in mind what you already said, that these are all approximations. There's uncertainty topped with uncertainty. But let's, uh, let's understand exactly what these thresholds mean. So, so I'm going to put on my super amateur epidemiology hat and, and give you the formula for the textbook formula for herd immunity. That is one minus one over R zero. That's it. Pretty straightforward. Um, and the estimates of R zero for COVID-19 are approximately, approximately between two and three, meaning that the average person who gets it will pass it on to two or three more people, barring the sort of uh, social interventions or changes in behavior that we've seen since the beginning of the outbreak. So if we have that range between two and three, then plugging those numbers into the formula, we have a threshold of 50% to 67%. That's it. That's that's the, the that's as far as the the basic textbook approach takes us, and that is in the range of of what we've heard in the estimates that you know are in the news every day. But when you look at that formula, what it's telling you, I mean, the relationship between R zero and the threshold is what it means is that threshold is where R T, I mean R zero at any given time, where R T falls below one. And as we discussed when we were getting into the, the meanings of these exponents, when RT falls below one, that's good news, but it's not great news. I mean, there's, there's a lot of infections out there in the US and globally. And if, an, if RT is 0.9, then that means a lot more people are getting the virus. I mean, almost as many people as have it right now, uh, or at least have gotten it in the last five days. The, the, definition of the generation of COVID-19. So the threshold of 50 to 60 to 50 to 67% simply means that's the point when the the rate of infection slows down, not when it stops, not when it magically becomes not threatening to the fabric of society, just when it starts slowing down. So we have to keep that in mind that the the numbers in that range are saying this is when we can start to breathe a little easier. Maybe we start putting less pressure on the health system. But whatever that threshold is, we have to get a lot higher to, to really feel like we've, we've shut it down. I mean, the level of, uh, the level of vaccination for, for other common diseases is a lot higher. I mean, if we're thinking about the ones you, people get in childhood, uh, measles, for instance, has a much higher R0, but it has a much, much, much higher vaccination rate. So the question then is, if, if, if we think we know what the herd immunity threshold is, it's not entirely clear what it means. I mean, if, if we magically reach this level where RT got down to 0.9, and I'll throw this back at you, Carl, I mean, what changes? I mean, are we, we're not suddenly out in the streets partying or, or dancing because RT has gotten down to 0.9, are we? We're still taking most of the same precautions we're taking now. Yeah, I think this this theory, the using the formula to get to the threshold is the right way to get to the number that people are talking about, but it's not really representative of what's happening 
out there with this pandemic and with the vaccine. So I think the theory is, you know, the reason that formula works is like if you would under complete, you know, blank circumstances, you don't know there's a pandemic, you're not doing anything as a society to stop it. If, if you get infected or sorry, Jeff, let's hope you don't. If I get infected and I would infect three other people, if two of those three people are immune, then I can only pass it on to one. And so the, the outbreak can't, won't grow because I'm only passing it on to one other person. Um, so that's where you get from three to, to two thirds needed for the threshold. In reality, where we are is some percentage of the US population, and I think the estimates put it somewhere in the 10 to 20% range, likely have been infected at this point and are therefore therefore have some kind of immunity from having been infected. Then we're going to be vaccinating people, some of whom themselves have been infected, but generally those people are not in the first group. Um, and we also have all the other steps we've been taking to try, not try to, to effectively drive our way down because we don't have an outbreak anywhere in any major country, thankfully, where the reproduction number is anywhere like between two and three. We're talking about numbers, even for outbreaks that are growing, that are just a little bit above one. So we've already protected the herd in large part by the herd taking all of these steps that are very harmful and expensive in other ways. And as we va vaccinate and as the protection comes more from people having biological immunity than from measures to reduce exposure and infection, you can imagine some kind of hopefully very delicate and careful in practice, probably somewhat clumsy uh, step where, okay, we vaccinated more people, we can relax the rules a little. We vaccinated more people, we can re relax the rules a little. So at the end of it all, if we get to 67%, the RT would be 0.9 if we didn't also have these other protective measures, but I expect we still will have some protective measures and that while we won't all of a sudden open everything up, we will have been continually opening things up somewhat and we'll open them up a little more at that point. But yeah, if there's still the level of outbreak we have now, an RT of 0.9 is still going to mean a lot more people getting infected, going to the hospital and dying, uh, even with uh, the supposed herd protection. Yeah, I mean, the, the important point is that, the again, going back to what the textbooks say about this, herd immunity or herd protection is is not the level at which the the virus is eradicated. I mean, it's very, very, very far from that. It's the point at which there's no longer an outbreak. It is essentially a, a, a protecting the herd from an outbreak. Um, and yeah, that, that's that's all definitional. If if RT is below one, then there are plenty more cases happening. But there's no outbreak, at least not in the sense that we had had early on. It, it might feel like an outbreak because of the sheer raw numbers involved, but it's not exploding. The, the exponents are, are finally moving in the right direction. Um, but one thing that I, I sense this is one of your main interests in in, in how all these factors fit together, Carl, is it, it's one thing to say the threshold is 70% or we need to vaccinate X percent of the population to achieve our goals. but the problem isn't at the macro level. We, we can talk about the numbers at the country level or the state level, but, but ultimately, I mean, 
we're not getting infected based on the behavior of 300 million other people. We're getting infected based on the behavior of a fairly limited number of people, most of them in our immediate physical geographic area. So, so the question of, of herd protection is not so much at the country level, but at the local level, which means we're talking about a lot of sort of micro herd protection. And if we're thinking about it in those terms, like how do you then how do you then think of the math? How do you think of the the challenges of reaching a herd protection level in all of these micro geographic areas to protect everyone? Yeah, it, it, I think you're right, and you touched on it in our episode about vaccines. Of maybe you ought to just vaccinate individual geographic areas and be as complete as possible and try to uh, wipe out the outbreaks in those areas and. There's also the, this tragedy of the commons we've talked about before, where as as you're approaching herd protection in a given area, and as the news gets better and things get relaxed, there has been, at least in the U.S., some overlap between the people who are skeptical of vaccines or would just rather not take them themselves and the people who are going to take the riskiest behavior of the behavior that's sort of available to people as things open up. So I think there's going to be a very awkward transition period as we move toward uh, the so-called herd protection, including questions about travel restrictions. And do we, you know, open things up nationally and internationally, even when there are pockets that, that still haven't reached the levels we, we think we need to reach? And then there's going to be this like, oh, you know, theoretically, we should be at herd protection within this community and it's not happening. And why is that? And, you know, maybe that the R0 was so different for that community that it didn't apply. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm curious um, wh- when you'll feel comfortable resuming usual activities, including potentially traveling and, and what metrics you'd be watching for. Yeah, that's a, a a really important issue. And since I rarely leave my office, I'm not really thinking in practical terms. That predates the pandemic by many, many years. But it's it's a really important issue you raise with with travel restrictions because I, I hadn't thought about this before. And I wonder if you're if you would agree with this that as certain communities get closer to a herd protection threshold, uh, travel restrictions might be even more important because it. it Let's say you have two neighboring countries, let's call them Norway and Denmark, with similar levels of, of infections, with, uh, with similar RTs. Uh, if, if you allow travel between Norway and Denmark, it, it doesn't help. I mean, it, it, it probably means, as you point out, the people who are willing to behave more, in a more risky manner are more likely to, to get the virus, they're more likely to spread it, and then if you get an, uh, an outbreak in one place, you get it in both. So there's reasons to have travel restrictions between Norway and Denmark, even if both of them are relatively okay at this stage. But if one of them starts vaccinating and the other doesn't, then even if both of them are still doing okay by 2020 standards, the 2021 standards are going to be different. And you, it feels like you'd have a lot of places sort of turn into New Zealand. I mean, New, New Zealand has very aggressively kept outbreaks at bay. Um, they have the the luxury of of having limited ways into the country, so it's it's probably easier for them to con- control their borders than it is for countries in Europe. But th- does that make sense as a logical extension of what we're talking about here? That as cer- certain communities approach the herd protection threshold, that 
they're going to be even more careful about travel in and out than they were before? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think they they have to be. Um, they have to like protect their, their hard-won um, suppression of the outbreak. Although, you know, in practice, I think all of these travel restrictions have exceptions and there are plenty of ways for the pandemic to spread within within places but uh, I mean I think this is going to be a, a really big we'll see what happens between Norway and Denmark there are also just whole regions of the world not surprisingly the, the poorer parts of the world that aren't getting access to the vaccine at least not at, at first and I think that, that could create a real differential in their recovery and their rejoining of the sort of global economic uh, environment of trade and tourism and everything else. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you could imagine there being like dashboards of what the, the protection level is and what the vaccination rate is in different countries. And even if there aren't hard restrictions, people making decisions about where to stage business events, where to travel, where to stage sporting events, um, the, these sorts of, of factors are going to have significant impacts on society even beyond uh, the level of, of outbreaks and infections. So it, it's, it's interesting. You'll see headlines referring to herd immunity as a strategy or herd immunity as a goal. And I think generally epidemiologists think that's ridiculous and stupid. And, and most, most countries have not gone any, gone down the route of anything like that. And we'll get into that in a moment, but again, it's a it's a technical term. I mean, it's funny how so many of these terms that used to sit dusty in epidemiological textbooks, uh, now they're on the front page of every newspaper in the world. And this is a great example that herd immunity isn't a strategy. Herd immunity is a theoretical number. It's a construct that normally we, we can only really pin down after the pandemic is over. We can only estimate it now. So saying it's a strategy isn't not is not just possibly foolish it's just kind of grammatically incorrect but let let's talk about what people mean by that so when we when we've heard about countries pursuing or potentially pursuing herd immunity as a strategy carl what what do they mean i mean they're talking about getting there without the vaccine right by just getting getting a lot of people infected is that fair yeah i think the the general idea is to is much in the same way that you can be really targeted with the vaccine and you can you can reach people first who maybe are super spreaders because of their jobs or because of their demographic or behavior but also potentially people who are really essential for fighting the pandemic people who are most vulnerable to the to infection and and to succumbing to infection um that somehow the strategy with without a vaccine is do is that you can target the infection itself that you can ha have the people who are least likely to get very sick and die from the from the uh, pandemic to get them infected first and get them to spread it only within their group and that then enough people will have been infected and will have immunity from having been infected, that that will suppress the overall outbreak and protect people who are most vulnerable 
without having to shut down uh, aspects of the economy or change aspects of the economy. I mean, shutdown is is a loaded catch-all that includes wearing masks and avoiding close contact indoors, neither of which need to shut down the economy. Um, so, so I think that is the theory and the goal. And uh, I will leave it to you now to comment on whether that seems like a realistic one or one that anyone's actually carried out with any success here or with other pandemics. Well, it certainly isn't anything that anyone's carried out with any success against COVID-19. That's for sure. I mean, the the only places that have been successful are the ones that are very aggressively contact tracing and also managing their borders. So we're basically talking about what New Zealand, Japan, Taiwan, maybe South Korea, uh, just a few places. So they have certainly not gotten there via any kind of herd immunity. That's there's no question about that. Uh, and your other question in there was if if that could be achieved or had been achieved with other virus or viruses or diseases. And there's a very direct quote from that in the in the Atlantic Social Distance podcast from from an expert whose name I apparently forgot to jot down, so apologies for that. But he basically said there's never been a real case of herd immunity through infection for any disease ever. <laughs> I mean, that's about as clear as you could you could ask for. Uh, it's it's just not possible. I mean, and any any disease with this kind of potential for harm, with the death rates with that this has, with the lingering uh, the lingering physical sickness effects that it has, in you're talking about so much collateral damage uh, to reach this threshold and protect everyone else. I mean, if, if you buy into a threshold number of 70%, you're talking about asking 70% of the population to suffer to protect the other 30%, um, which sounds pretty ridiculous, even if you take the most cold-blooded, economic, utilitarian kind of trade-off approach to the problem. Uh, really, the only way the logic works is if you buy into some of the low-end estimates that we mentioned earlier in this episode of 20 to 30%, which don't seem to be commonly accepted. I mean, it seems like you really have to bend your assumptions, especially about super spreaders and their role, to get to a herd immunity threshold of 20 or 30%. And there have been examples where communities seem to get that high, like the famous one is Manaus in Brazil, uh, that that seemed to have the outbreak die down after they had a very very bad outbreak that perhaps infected thirty percent of the population, but it came back it, it, to the extent that people believed that someone had achieved herd immunity. That case seemed to offer proof that it hadn't. Um, and one of the factors that might have been an issue in Manaus, it's definitely a longer term factor we're all facing, is how long this immunity lasts. I mean, we're using the term immunity as if we all agree on what it means, but it's not super clear what it means. I mean, herd protection is not necessarily for all time. Uh, if 70% of the people are immune, that doesn't necessarily mean 70% are immune 12 months from now. And Carl, that seems like one of the biggest factors that needs to be taken into account when we're calculating these thresholds is how long the immunity lasts, both from infection and disease, and how... How do you take that into account, into account in in interpreting these herd immunity thresholds? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really big source of uncertainty for both acquiring immunity from be, having been infected or from having been vaccinated. And 
as long as this this hellscape feels like it's it's lasted we we still don't have as much information as we would need in terms of how long term uh likelihood of reinfection protection uh, from either source of immunity to, to really know. It does seem like there's some indication that the immunity from the vaccines could be longer lasting on average, but this probably also varies quite a bit uh, from people. And, you know, all the public health advice reflecting this uncertainty is even if you've been infected before, you should take the same precautions as everybody else. You should uh, get vaccinated when you can. So th there's clearly some uncertainty there. There's also, I think we can talk about later, but there's there's the point of like, it's not just about vaccinating the percentage of people who you need, um, but that that percentage actually get an effective result from the vaccine. Not everyone who is vaccinated is going to end up with immunity protection. Um, I, I do want to just back up for a second and say that the, the you, you said something like, well, you know, 70% of people might have to suffer to protect the other 30%. And I think there's there's this misconception, and let's just call them out. There have been three countries that either have talked about herd immunity as a strategy at the upper levels of government, or have been talked about as if they were pursuing it. Sweden, the UK, and the US. Uh, there may be others. Uh, maybe maybe Brazil sort of indifference was, was some of the same thing. And th there's this uh, Im implicit idea that th what's behind it is that, oh, 70% or some large percentage of the population can just get this and be okay. And the two big problems I see there, and I, I want to hear what you think about, Jeff, one is we are all connected as, as a society. We can't actually se separate out the people who are least susceptible because they are the people who work with, who visit, who uh, interact with through two or three degrees of removal with the people who are most vulnerable. And if the overall levels are very high, then that's risky. And then secondly, as a relative measure of how it affects somebody's likelihood of getting very sick or dying in a given period, everyone is susceptible to coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, 18 to 34-year-olds are much less likely to die if they're infected, but they're much less likely to die, period. But if you look at the relative effect on their mortality rates of coronavirus, it's enormous. So there is still this really great toll, uh, even if it's not as high in terms of the absolute rates of fatality. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, for a second, I was going to classify myself as one of those 18 to 34s, which um, I'm not. But it's uh, but as a member of a relatively healthy age cohort, one of the one of the biggest threats statistically is is um, dangerous driving, accidents on the road. I'm not sure if that's the number one cause of death for for young people in the U.S. I don't think it is, but but it is in in many many countries, especially in Africa and parts of what's what we call the third world. Um, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't drive safely, right? <laughs> you don't say, well, it's a it's it's rare that you die from a from a driving accident. So eh, whatever, take it as it comes. I mean, we've all been in the car, pe car with people who drive like that, but we still care about auto safety, airbags, following the rules of the road, enforcing the rules of the road, learning how to drive, driving safely, yada, yada, yada. So to say that 
yeah, it's not as risky for 35 year olds as it is for 75 year olds, while true is it is missing the point. That's a, that's a, a point well taken. Um, so, and maybe along similar lines, countries that are have or have thought about pursuing herd immunity as a strategy seem to be very cocky about what they can achieve. Because the the idea, as you say, Carl, is that we somehow get to seventy percent by certain people getting infected without other people getting infected. And there was this uh, this petition that a bunch of academics and thinkers signed recently, the Great Barrington Declaration that sort of waved its hand and said that we'd, can, we'd open up but continue to protect vulnerable populations. And I mean, that all, that all sounds nice maybe, but we're trying to protect vulnerable populations now. I mean, that, that's, that's been part of the game plan, at least in some places from day one. I mean, maybe some places have executed it poorly. I mean, there were some issues in New York State with nursing homes being being legally prohibited from turning away people with coronavirus so i mean that in retrospect that's a pretty bad policy but in general we have been trying to protect vulnerable populations and we haven't i mean maybe we've done better better than we would have without the intervention interventions that we've made but even with the general level of lockdown across society uh, vulnerable populations are getting hit hard so if we suddenly opened up a lot more uh, and suddenly a lot more teenagers and 20-somethings and 30-somethings got COVID-19, then you have to assume that people people in vulnerable age cohorts would get it a lot more as well. Uh, so it's, it seems like it, even if you accept the premises of people who want to seek herd immunity through infection, it, it seems far-fetched. I mean, I've already outlined one way of thinking about it, that you're putting 70% of the population at risk in exchange for saving the other 30. But that's assuming you can do it. And I, I just don't see the evidence that you can. I mean, it, 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 is, that, is that a fair summary, Carl? Is there something that I'm missing? Is there some way to better protect vulnerable populations than we've been doing already? I mean, I think somehow if you knew going into this that we wouldn't have a vaccine for years and you could somehow turn the dials on various factors of like how we're trying to protect ourselves in other ways uh, to to focus on only the the least vulnerable members of society being the most exposed but keeping the number who actually are are getting very sick and needing hospitalization to a manageable level while also making sure that healthcare workers aren't getting sick and and teachers and 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 other essential workers i mean it just suddenly the numbers just don't add up like you would need to somehow keep rt at one keep the outbreak at a very steady level monitor everything and make sure that society is not breaking down and that people with other health needs are having their needs met and that it would somehow there that all of this would last for long enough that that would end up le leaving you with herd protection even with this question of we don't know how long the protection lasts for any individual uh, who's been infected none of that is realistic for for what the situation was when we entered the pandemic so yeah it just doesn't seem like it, it would it would get you 
somewhere worth having gotten to with all the the costs and risks associated with that approach yeah it, 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 i think it's easy to especially for politicians who are, are getting accustomed to having this power to shut down certain things and open up other things at at will it's easy to imagine they have more power than they really do and society is so interconnected i mean one of the things that kind of blew my mind early in the pandemic was a reason why a lot of of older people in nursing homes were getting the were getting the virus even when we knew they were at risk uh, certain measures were already being taken was that a lot of nursing home workers are working in multiple places i mean it, you can't you can't simply shut down a nursing home i mean you, you can't quarantine a nursing home 100% unless you're willing to have all of the support staff live there full time and all the suppliers live there full time. I mean, it's just, you can't totally shut virtually anything down. Uh, and, and that means that you can't control things at the level you'd have to, even if this sort of herd immunity through infection strategy made sense, which in itself, again, is probably not true. But even if we take it on, on uh, in, the mo in the most charitable manner possible, we're still ending up with something that sounds impossible. So uh, you already teased this as a subject, Carl. I, I wanted to make sure not to miss this. Is We're talking about these various thresholds, whatever you believe it is, 50%, 67%, 70 higher. Uh, we're going to end up getting there. Optimistically, we're going to end up getting there by some combination of people who are already infected and a much larger chunk of people who are getting the vaccine. And it's easy to say, okay, in the U.S., let's estimate 20% of people have been infected. Therefore, 50% of people need to get the vaccine. Then we can get to 70 and snap your fingers, do a little dance, and you're done. Uh, but it's not quite that simple, right? I mean, the idea is you have to have 70% be immune. And if you have 20% theoretically immune from infection, 50% getting the vaccine, that doesn't add up to 70, does it? <laughs> well, so first of all, there's some overlap, as I mentioned. Some people who were infected are going to get vaccinated, and that's as it should be. It's not like they're cheating or, or like it's a mistake. And it's partly because we don't know for sure how long immunity lasts. Secondly, we, we talked on the episode we did about vaccines, about effectiveness, but in short, no vaccine is 100% effective. In fact, as you remind, while we're talking now about vaccines that fall a little short of 100% and are being talked about as 95 or above percent effective. The threshold set in terms of acceptability in the US was 50% 50, 50 which I think was probably a smart way of motivating a lot of different people to try to develop vaccines knowing that they could probably clear that threshold. But um, means that down the road, as we potentially get other vaccines, which we might need to get the supply we need to get everyone vaccinated, the effectiveness could be lower. And surely the effectiveness varies uh, by person and, and by different populations. And by the way, the people administering vaccines and trials are probably doing it better on average than the, the armies of uh, vaccine givers we're going to need to, to give this vaccine at a mass scale. Um, and that's going to have some effect on effectiveness too. To me, the biggest 
reduction in force of the vaccine is just that not everyone is going to want it once even once everyone can get it and the percentages have gone up a little bit in the u.s but they're still not i think even as high as probably the percentage we would need to get vaccinated theoretically to have herd immunity uh i i wonder what the sentiment is like around you and if there's the same kind of um, skepticism or, or maybe the same level of skepticism for different reasons, but ultimately we're going to need um, a high enough percentage to get vaccinated for these other numbers to even come into play. Yeah, that is a big factor. Um, I think as, as a factor, the sort of vaccine reluctance might be overplayed a little bit. Um, maybe some countries or some, uh, some authorities are more worried about it or catering more to it than they should be, but it's still very much a concern. And as, uh, as you explain there, I started with the assumption of 50% using some toy numbers, but 50% is definitely too low. Maybe 55%, 60% is maybe getting there. But I mean, that's, that's the sort of, sort of level of vaccination you need to approach the 70% threshold that we talk about with herd protection. So, so we're talking about some really big numbers. Um, I think we talked about last, I forget whether we mentioned it or whether we just uh, had it in our notes that, that Switzerland is one example of a country that's choosing to wait and see. And they're, they're doing it partly to hopefully uh, lessen some of the vaccine reluctance among their population and also maybe a cheap way of, uh, of taking advantage of data uh, received from the sort of mass trial that's happening in real time. But I think there, there's a number of countries in Europe doing the same thing. I, I, I get some of the same vibe here in, in, in Norway that I mean, there isn't the same sort of anti-vaccine subculture here, but there are people who aren't really sure. Uh, and j just because we live in a social democratic paradise doesn't mean that people are just signing up for the vaccine 100%. So there is, there is some wait and see. I think that as the momentum picks up and and i saw i saw on twitter last night ian mckellen got the virus and somebody was making a joke that after he got the jab it turned him into his character from cats got the vaccine right not the virus that's what got the vaccine shoot yep um yeah that turned him into this character from cats not getting the virus that would turn him into a sick cat i guess that wasn't in the movie but as we see more of that happening i think it will become more normalized and and maybe some of the concerns will will lessen but it's it's a factor i mean it, it's going to take time maybe it's going to be okay because it takes so much time to vaccinate millions even billions of people that there's going to be people by the time we get to the end of the line it will be at minimum months from now and by then people will have have realized it's in their best interests but uh, but it's a factor i think uh, all over the world and the biggest factor I think that I, I wanted to touch on before we wrap up this episode here is the people who already were anti-vaccine, uh, the anti-vax crowd, particularly in the U.S., that have already created problems with uh, small outbreaks of, of the measles, for instance, uh, and you would expect would be a problem here. So, so Carl, how, how do we think about achieving herd protection when we know there are these pockets, some of them geographically concentrated, uh, at least in the U.S., where we're going to have to fight to get big percentages of the population to get the vaccine if they ever do. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is where creating individual and more macro economic incentives and, and getting creative will definitely help. So before we get to herd immunity, there will be individual immunity, there will be certificates, this will open up potential employment, but maybe also like attendance at fun events that have been canceled for the last year, uh, travel. So I think, you know, that that will start to maybe get some people interested, even if they don't believe in it, uh, if they can see around them lots of people perfectly healthy and, and getting to do things they can't. And then from a more macro level, I mean, I can see this being very punitive and maybe maybe harsh about some communities where it's not about anti-vax, but other reasons. But I imagine we're going to have stats on like the vaccination level um, in different places. And even if we don't directly have those stats, we're going to have outbreak stats. We already do. And those will be directly affected. And that will affect tourism decisions. It will affect, um, you know, decisions around setting up uh, business offices and, and meetings and, and people choosing to relocate to places. So I think there will be you know, much like we've seen uh, economic pressure being one of the big factors in pushing parts of the U.S. that, let's say, were anti-gay rights or anti-trans rights to to change at least their official position uh, because it just was too costly. I think there will be the potential for such measures, and it'll be interesting to see if certain countries or certain states try uh, steps like that to to nudge up these these numbers more globally because we need herd immunity everywhere if we're going to have it anywhere. Yeah, and it's it it's still a first step. I mean that that's that's the thing that it feels like this enormous enormous hurdle to overcome, uh, even at the local level, but certainly certainly at the global level. And even then, we hit that threshold. And again, the threshold isn't magically. It's over. Everybody party in the streets. The we're back to normal life. That just means there's no more large scale outbreaks. RT is decreasing, and we're gently, eventually returning to normal. And that's all. So, hopefully, this episode has sort of uh, given you a better idea of what herd protection means. Uh, why herd immunity might not be the right term to use. Uh, some of the factors that go into a society reaching it, whether you can get there by infection. Lots of ground packed into those two words that we're seeing in the headlines every day. Um, and lots of math too, which is right right up our alley. So so thank you, Carl, for, um, for joining me for this. I think this has been a, a really useful conversation. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening. This has been episode five of Dangerous Exponents. Um, you can find us at dangerousexponents.com. As I said at the outset, we're going to circulate a survey asking just a few questions about what you think of the podcast, what you'd like to be different or better, maybe maybe a new host, something along those lines. Uh, so check for that. Uh, it'll at least be on my Twitter at Tennis Abstract. Uh, we'd love to get as many responses as possible. So thanks to anyone who fills that out. And check back soon for episode six. Uh, we'll see you then.